Hey, if y'all will gather around, we're going to get started with Emmaus Way. Um, we're going we're gonna, to uh, be in our fifth Sunday of Epiphany, but we're going to start a new series on the Gospel of John. So we're going to be looking at John, the first chapter this evening. And uh, so grab something to drink and uh, something to eat and mosey your way over. I know in uh, American liturgy, this is Super Bowl Sunday, but uh, we... Uh, trying to work from the church calendar here, although we, we'll be done in time for you to get going if you have to watch the Super Bowl to, to, to look at your bets. things about the uh, Gospel of John is that the uh, first chapter talks an enormous about a, a amount about love. And I think that theme of God's love for us from the beginning, from before time began, is a huge part of what we're going to keep talking about throughout the whole series of the book. So John was the disciple that Jesus loved. At least that's how he referred to himself. So this song is our uh, call this evening. Uh, all because of you. All because of you, I am. It's basically saying that God's love for us, His grace, is what makes us who we are. It makes us really, truly human. So uh, sing along with us. You know this one. ugly but your beautiful face left me no illusion saw you in the curve of the moon in the shadow cast across my room you heard me in my tune when I just heard confusion all because of you all because of you all because of you I sound of my own voice didn't give anyone else a choice intellectual toys racing with the bullet train
welcome to Emmaus Way. It's good to see everybody here. This is apparently our Super Bowl crowd on a, a Sunday night. Wade, you're right. This is like a, a heavy liturgical Sunday. And there was a time, and I, I, I feel the love. When I was 14, I just can remember arguing with my dad. Oh, they're yeah. going out to Sunday night church. I was a big Dallas Cowboys fan. I was like, and, and if you lived in North Carolina, the Cowboys were on every Sunday at 4 o'clock. And if you're a Southern Baptist kid, it doesn't matter that church is at 6 on Sunday night. But I would fight, and my dad would drop some big theology on me like you know son the cowboys might lose if you don't go to church that's right <laughs> and you know, there's nothing worse than sitting at home and realizing that you cost a professional sports team a victory because you wouldn't go to church <laughs> exactly then you're all going to hell that's exactly right but uh, sadly i had to confess last week i asked somebody on wednesdays like who's playing in the game so anyway it's life changes but uh, it's good to see everybody here it's uh it's always a, a privilege as a community of mayus way to gather to uh not only gather at the table where we uh get to live out the resurrection of christ uh, and assemble around that table but it's also always exciting to hear each other's voices to hear your stories of redemption your stories of pain and woundedness as well as our our passions to follow God together. And so in so many ways, I'm encouraged by, by sitting and hearing the voices of this community more than anyone else. And I got to say, wait, I'm pretty pumped about the music tonight. I, I've been, you know, it's one of the things that you, you get that privilege of, you know, we're jumping into John one today, but, but I've been jumping into it for several days and, uh, it's always exciting to realize, wow, the, the and I'll let you, I won't, I won't describe other than that, just to say that the, the music today is in many ways just grabbing the themes of John and, and we've really started the dialogue already. So, uh, Anyway, I'm I'm very excited about that, and of course I'm a BB King fan as well. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. uh, yeah, so we're excited about that. And uh, again, uh, delighted to have everybody here. In terms of Emmaus Way uh, stuff, that I'm sure Jenny would want everybody to know that she's having a party tonight, and everybody's invited to to go. And so if you don't know the way to Jenny's, I'm she's a new house. I'm not sure the way either, but uh, a lot of us are heading over there after church. So please feel very invited. Uh, any other? Um, uh, other announcements. Dan, I have this fear I said something wrong, but. Yeah. Usually when I have a verbal faux pas, they're so bad, <laughs> I can handle that one. <laughs> yeah. So we, um, we just made a hire oh, for yeah. the little babies back in there because we have so many children that we now need three rooms, which is super exciting. Um, but also that means that we really need some more help back there. So we've had a pretty solid rotation of the same people for over two years now, and we would love it if you're at all interested in popping in on that. Um, there's now three rooms that we would love to have one person at least a night in. So if that's something you're interested in, you can find my email in the weekly. It's also on the back, chelsea at amazeway.com, and then, or .net, sorry. And then um, also that means that you have three options. You have the school-age kids that you can hang with if you like that. So you have toddlers, which is really fun to get messy and and big thanks to Chelsea and uh, Sarah and uh, uh, Sarah and others who are part of that hire. So we've got three rooms. So go forth and vol- volunteer and go forth and reproduce. We've got more, uh, <laughs> got more room, I guess. <laughs> Dan, is there a, a Mayus Way, uh, I mean, a, a Durham Can update for us? Okay. And we'll be looking. We've got people trained, so we'll be looking for a host for that as well. So, great.
Thanks, Tim. You know, the, uh, when Tim and I were talking about this Gospel of John, uh, Dan sent out a great pub group article. And um, so if you would like to read that, it's great talking about this first chapter, this prologue of John. And um, Tim said, uh, as we were talking, man, you know, this first chapter of John is really just an orgasm of love. It is God's orgasm of love for us. And I thought, you know, you don't hear that in church very often. Uh, not from the pulpit, but I thought, you know, you guys needed to know that's really the explosion, the expressiveness of how much God's love is showing up in this. And so um, this song, The Gift, um, doesn't use that language exactly, but I think it's got this idea of God's grace and care, which I think, interestingly, you know, oftentimes when you ask people about church, they'll say, well, you know, they think about rules and they think about people that are trying to get people to stop doing things or change behavior. And I think it's uh, interesting that this gospel in John is trying to talk about a kind of grace that is different than that, where the grace is it, it really an extravagance. So sing along with us. You can trip smoke smiling in your worn out shoes. Cast away the rhythm of eternity's cue Grapple with its on the hold till it abandons you But you can't deny it You can falter at the well making heroes out of ghosts Stuffing yourself on thankless posts but I have faith in your withering soul Cause you can deny a gift No, you can't deny a gift Gift of one, gift to all Wings to soar, not to fall Gift of light in the abyss High ground above the pit Choice to live That is a gift and Though this gift lacks frivolous flair Doesn't sparkle in the sun And requires little care It's one of all human enough to spare Lay down defense Share. Throw down defense and we will share Give to one, give to all Wings to soar, not to fall Give the light in the abyss Higher ground above the pit The choice to live, that is a gift That is the gift That is the gift 
about the Psalms over the weeks of storytelling. We've talked about how the Psalms are interesting stories um, of the life of Israel, of the writers where there's um, hope and where there's despair and where there's oftentimes a mixture. And I think what's interesting about this next song, um, Tim sent out on a weekly that uh, Love Comes to Town, When Love Comes to Town, is a song that uh, was in the mind of this uh, writer that he was looking at that was talking about uh, the Gospel of John. And so... This song, uh, this version that they did, that you two did with B.B. King, is a blues song. It's really based on a blues riff. And, you know, the blues are, are oftentimes very much like psalms where they tell difficult stories, sad stories, but they also tell great stories of joy. And they can oftentimes tell them at the same time or in the same song. And so this song is no example. There's a great uh, verse later in the song where he says, B.B. King sings, I was there when they crucified my Lord, and I held the scabbard when the soldier drew his sword. You know, that's not the kind of admission we all want to necessarily make. And I threw the dice when they pierced his side, but I've seen love conquer at the great divide. When love comes to town, I'm going to jump that train. When love comes to town, I'm going to catch that flame. Maybe I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. lost at sea I was under the waves before love rescued me I was a fighter I could serve on a thread now I stand accused of the things I've said I was making promises I would soon forget She was pale as the lace of her wedding gown But I left her standing before love came to town Ran into a juke joint when I heard a guitar scream The notes were turned blue, I was dazing in a dream Love comes to town, I'm gonna jump the train when love 
was there when they crucified my Lord And I held the scabbard when the soldier drew his sword And I threw the dice as they pierced his side But I've seen love conquer the great divide When love comes to town, I'm gonna jump that train When love comes to town, I'm gonna catch that train How many of you guys have ever had opportunity to go to a blues club like Chicago or St. Louis or some of those places? I, the first time I ever went to a blues club, I think it was in the late 80s, and I had a friend from Chicago said, we're going to go, we're going to go do this and do this right. And probably, I don't know, uh, uh, Ben or Josh may can explain this, but I was so taken aback by the, by the, the, the presentation of the, you know, the, the band was always out there playing and they play for forever, you know, and they would play songs like that. And then the, they would, the blues master, like the, the lead guy in the band would never come out when the band starts. He'd let them go for about 20, 25 minutes. And then there was always this kind of dramatic entry as the blues guy came in. And when I hear the reversal of that song, I always imagine, you know, V.V. Uh, King walking in with a, a cigarette, and, you know, a beer and saying, hey, it, it is actually different than the way I'm telling it. So anyway, thanks guys. Hey, um, tonight is, is our custom. Uh, we typically give you a chance to stand up, offer the peace of Christ to the uh, people who are around you. If you're around somebody that you don't know, introduce yourself and uh, it's a chance to grab a quick cup of coffee or so. So stand up. I'll give us a, a shout in two minutes. So, um, so Chelsea's going to get us started tonight by reading uh, John 1, 1 through 18. Kind of our plan, I think, is to, um, to move through John as we're heading here into the Lenten season. So uh, looking forward to that. As you, you're going to see many times that this is, in some ways, uh, set up dramatically by our, our journey this, uh, this fall through Joshua and Judges. So, uh, but what Chelsea's going to read is what's called the prologue of the gospel. It's, it's fairly famous if you've ever read the New Testament. You will recognize many of the passages, and it's a, it's a powerful word about the identity of God. Yeah. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was the light, and that light is the light of all The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but he did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children who were not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, Who he who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of this fullness we have all received grace from the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one who has ever seen God, but the only one the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made me known. Thanks, Chelsea. So to kind of prepare for this, um, uh, I was making a list of issues, questions, struggles, uh, things that we ask about the person of God, the, the identity of, of Yahweh, uh, of the Christ. And as I was starting to make the list, and I have kind of my partial list in front of me, I thought, you know, this really is a question that I need to ask you. I think uh, you'll probably can get my list pretty quickly. But let me throw that at you, is that when you think about the, the really difficult um, question of wrapping your arms around the identity of God uh, or, or, or struggling with who is um, the, 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 the God that we worship. What are some of the questions, comments, struggles, things that come to mind as you try to figure out the identity of God? Uh, throw a few out there for me. Okay, yeah, I mean, the the times of the silence of God can be incredibly, not only frustrating, but uh, mesmerizing. And and there's periods of historical silence in a certain way that are very difficult. Yeah, thanks, Robert. Others? Yeah, and these these words that we use, um, and, and and the scriptures use to identify God are not neutral words for us. We receive those words with experiences, uh, with a whole package and background, and so uh, God the Father can mean a lot of things. And what fa- a father was, uh, it, it changes somewhat even over the whole biblical narrative as as they move from an ancient world to to uh, to a world that you know was uh, the time of Christ and the church beyond. Great point. Other thoughts? Uh, wrestling with the identity of God. I've struggled with the idea of God being all-powerful and then the idea that he also suffers with us. In other words, why would you want to suffer? If, if you could be above suffering, if you could somehow um, be all-powerful, wouldn't that mean you could also be all-comforting or whatever? Why would you need to suffer with us? So that feels like a paradox to me or like a tension, you know? Yeah. And the great part of that question as it relates to John's gospel is that actually John doesn't answer that question. <laughs> and it would be great if he did, believe me. But the, the, the pathos of God, the, 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 the emotions of God, as well as what we saw uh, interestingly when we were in Joshua where, where Rahab, uh, the prostitute of Jericho, very remarkably refers to God as a sovereign uh, when in, in that day most people would have seen their gods as having local powers, so to speak. And so, you know, what is the extent of the might of God? 
or the care of God, as Robert might say. Yeah. Other thoughts? I think the Trinity is like endlessly fascinating and endlessly troubling. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just so much that I got three words for you on that one. Water, ice, steam, egg, yolk. You know, yeah, I mean, come, I mean, I mean, this is hard, you know, and, and, and the identity of God in the scriptures is shrouded in, in some places, mystery, some places, lack of understanding and places where it's theologically presented as, as matter of factly. And you kind of go, I'd like to stop there and ask a question. And that's one of them. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah, Jesse. Somebody said silence, um, and and I think related to that is is God's speech, or what I what I think is God's speech, or I or I wonder if it's God's speech, and that and sort of trying to I guess the thing is what does God see when He looks at me, or what did, what is He saying to me, and is that God speaking or is that is that just my inner self-judge that's speaking to me or or the, or the person inside me that wants to rationalize what I'm doing? I, I, I'm trying to, trying to figure out, you know, what is God saying and what am I saying? And mm-hmm. what's the difference? Is there a difference? You know, and that's such a powerful point because it's to some degree, our, especially in our tradition, our talk about God gets personal at some level. And so... How does God intersect with our personal lives, the context of our lives, which at some point don't look very godly, um, as well as our, our communities and such? And I, I don't know, I grew up in a tradition, and some of you, I'm sure you did. Um, almost everybody in my family used language like, I feel led to. There was always this implication that even the most mundane acts were in some way intersecting with God's voice, God's will, God's power. And, you know, I'd be willing to trade a few of those for, uh, you know, dealing with world poverty or something like that. So that is a really, how does God intersect with our personal lives? A, a very real question. Yeah. Anybody else? That's a great point. And there's some great feminine images in the, uh, the New Testament of God that sometimes we look away from. I've, I've even presented those in sermons and people say, uh, that reference of God as a mother at breast was not a feminine image. And I'm like, okay, all right. Uh, but but it, you're very true. And Chad, I'm going to hold you after the service. <laughs> Looking forward to that. <laughs> Jesse, you were going to say something. I probably ruined it for you at that point. <laughs> I was just going to say, kind of related to what I guess what Andy was saying is just God not having a physical body. Like, I want to have coffee with God. And that doesn't work very well. And so, like, the the, the fact that he doesn't, like, I can't, you know, like he said, I I can't give God a hug. I can't, it's just hard to relate to that. Like, am I, who am I talking to? Am I I praying? Am I talking to the air? Am I, like, you'd like to have another physical being that you're talking to because that's the way all my other relationships. Absolutely, and there, there's in some ways there there can be pretty dissonant realities between our friendships, uh, close friends, marriage, relationships, and, and and God that we talk about so often. It's a very good point. Did somebody else? Was this somebody else? Did I miss comment? Those are great points. Uh, I mean, these are. 
filling up my list as well. Uh, I had one other that uh, I think of how divergent we are when it comes to talking about God as a broader culture. Um, some would really use the language of God as a God of our imagination, is that human beings just can't make it through life without some sense of a deity out there. And so it's a, it's a projection. It's, it's something that we desperately want to be true. But when you start looking at things like absences and sovereignty, is there indeed a God? And, and then for some, you would get an even sharper term that, that that wish, that need for God is such a powerful tool for manipulation. It's just so easy to manipulate human beings because of, of the deity factor. And, and all it takes is a pretty intense theology of who's in and who's out and what it takes and what our authority is. And before you know it, uh, people are kind of in, in, you know marching in line in a certain way. Um, and then there's another angle that, that people of faith take so often with God that, that is one of the most comparing dis, uh, or compelling descriptions is God as, as part of our eternal hope, the eternal nature of God and the hopeful nature of God. But, you know, we live in a time where there's a, a very dramatic, vigorous, uh, antagonistic conversation about some who would say our religious hopes, our faith hopes are what's wrong in the world. And, 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 and others who say very boldly and strongly that this is, this is indeed where our hope rests. So, these are great questions. And in some ways, what's interesting about John's gospel, and there'll probably be places where you are going to want to raise your hand and say, I'd like to grab the writer and ask a very specific question about what was said. But what's really interesting about John's gospel is it is in your face in a very direct, in an immediate way about the theological realities of God. There is none of the dramatic writing of, of Mark and Luke and Matthew where in many ways the identity of Jesus unfolds slowly. And, and to this morning I was, I was in uh, speaking at a church and we were in the middle of Mark's gospel and it was just a comedy of errors of, of the disciples uh, humorously named because they're clearly not disciples having no understanding of who Jesus is. And, and John takes us in an entirely different path with that. So let me just give us a few, um, a few theological points, big ones that jump right out in the first 18 verses of John. And this will kind of give us a, a starting point to some degree as we begin to unpack this theologically as we hear the story of John. This is in some ways not the story of John, but kind of a theological powerful canopy of the places that we're going to go. Very first is that God is referred to as Lagos. Or, or word. And, and, and as the more I've been reading about that idea, it, Lagos had such a divergent set of trajectories of what that might mean. Like, for example, if, if I were to say a word like a, a less loaded word, but if I were to say diversity, you guys would probably have a lot of different reactions to that word. You might think about it in terms of a hiring policy. You might think of it in terms of, uh, of your neighborhood. You might think of it in terms of your family. You might think of it in terms of an absence somewhere. So e even words like that provoke lots of different, uh, different thoughts. And Lagos was a word that could go in lots of different directions. For example, some would have uh, treated that as a representation of 
of, of divine power. There was some divine secret that existed somewhere. Um, some held this. Um, in, in, in Greek philosophy, it, and, and the Greeks would have heard this term, I think, fairly quickly as some form of rational principle. I, was, I told Dan I was going to put him on the spot. You have a, a sound bite for us of how the, the, the Greeks might have, have heard that term? Um, so my impression would be that uh, when ancients thought a lot of the world with regard to the way heavenly bodies moved, and so uh, the kind of circular movement of the heavenly bodies, which was predictable and kind of somehow could, uh, uh, could be told, uh, described the moving of a kind of circular cosmos in the way, so that the whole kind of universe works in a, uh, a cyclical kind of um, predictable manner that is eternal. And so logos would have been the kind of underwriting principle of how all that goes on, and our brains kind of, or not necessarily our brains, but human beings kind of connect to that through uh, that type of rational understanding. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of cosmological principle of how everything connects to and it's not just the ancient Greeks, but you know, the later centuries, people would look for a uni unifying principle uh, of life, and, and this might be one. That's, that's fantastic. Um, the, the article we read for Pub Group made a, an interesting point that for Jews, they had their own understanding of Lagos, and that was God's self-expression in word and deed. And I think what's interesting for us, though, is that the, the writer of John is going to take this loaded concept, we're going to see it several times here, and he's going to take it to an entirely different place, describing Lagos as God's personal and creative activity uh, made most clear when God takes on flesh. So God in flesh, God's personal and creative activity, something that deeply intersects with the personhood of who we are, the world that was created, God in flesh. Now, interestingly, there's more theology to this. As Chelsea read um, the start of this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So we get Lagos three times there and he was with God in the beginning through him. All things were made without him. Nothing was made that has been made. And so right there, we get three massive statements about, about God and the word, uh, that the word is eternal. It's, it's something that was there beyond the beginning and it wasn't part of the beginning. A dramatic statement about God. We get a sense of the word Lagos the Christ as in fellowship with God, which takes us to Amy's comment about the Trinity and how is Christ and God, how are they in, in, in fellowship? And then the thing that Jesus said regularly in the other gospels that I am indeed God. There's this laden and here's the divine nature of the Lagos. So in some ways, these tremendously dramatic theological assertions, every one of which we kind of want to raise our hand and say, I would love to know how uh, the eternity of God, I would love to know some of those things. But John starts with his, his, his guns loaded. Another thing that we get in a sense of listening to um, of the word of God, of the Christ, is that the word is not passive, but active. That all things were made through him. So we get this idea that, that um, as it's identified with Jesus later, that Jesus is not just uh, a redeeming savior, but a creator, the creator as well. Which in some 
ways dramatically looks, helps us rethink our thoughts about God. Travis and I had a good conversation one time and, and a point that he made, which I thought was a fantastic one, is that many, many times we look at God solely as a redeemer. It's kind of part of our Protestant tradition. It's a, a very, very accurate part of our tradition. But we forget that God is a creator. We're, we're called not only to be redeemed, but to be uh, collaborators, not only in redemption, but in God's creative work. And John is hitting us with that immediately. Another big statement here. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The logos is not only related to God, but related to men. And this strikes to what you were saying, Jesse, is that in some ways there is a distinct and unique relationship between between the logos, between the word, between Christ and us as human beings. And so in some ways, all of our life is an expression of the power of God, something I cannot explain, but I can assure you this, it's something that I'm very, very willing to forget most of the time. That in some ways my life is sustained by God, that I am the product of God's love and effort. Uh, You know what? I feel like I'm the product of my own love and effort. Uh, This type of theology is something that I, I struggle with. A theme that we're going to get constantly in this is the idea of light and darkness. There are going to be dramatic moments of declaration. Jesus declaring himself as the light of God at times in time of, of great darkness. Uh, he's going to proclaim this. And in some ways, uh, the, the gospel of John is going to force us to see that, that, that God illuminates Darkness. There is no fear of describing aspects of our world as in darkness. And what he means by this is rebellion. Uh, I mean, not just passive resistance to God, but tremendous rebellion to the work of God. And we get the idea constantly that the light not only shows that rebellion, deals with that rebellion, you get the idea that there's going to be a, a certain victory, that it's going to overcome the darkness, but it has not been overcome. Another part of our theology that at times we we don't talk enough about, we act as if there is nothing in the world that needs to be redeemed. And John has a vigorous language of of evil and of rebellion. Another point, and and Wade, a lot of our music picked this up, is the idea and the words, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. And one of the things the author of the fourth gospel thinks so strongly about is that we think about our faith a lot of times as something in our own right language, something that I deserve, something that I can get. I was smart enough to choose God. I was smart enough to know what was going on. I was perceptive enough to see God. I was influenced enough by by God's people. But what John is going to keep hitting us with is a language of of repetitive gift, that, that God's work in us is gift and gift and gift. In fact, perhaps one of the greatest struggles that God followers have at times is there always seems to be a movement between thankfulness and entitlement. In some way, I'm quick to say that I'm better than you or someone or what you think or believe because in some way I've participated in it rather than truly received a gift. And it goes on to say in several places that the, this, the, that God's gift is full of grace and full of truth. And so the story of Jesus in our world is a story of confession for us and of undeserved, gracious, good favor from God. And you know, one of the things that I I really at times are at wit's end to see 
it just living in the paradigm that I live in of my own control, my own interest, my own goodness in a certain way is that at times I struggle with the idea of being a grateful person, living in gratitude. And I could tell you a million stories on this, but one of the things that I have learned constantly is that when I am not in a state of gratitude, I am almost blinded in my ability to see the goodness of God. Uh, my own entitlement is usually a problem here. John is going to take that straight on. Um, perhaps the most dramatic part of this is the idea that the Lagos dwelt among us. He, in some ways, as one translation puts, pitched his tent among us. Um, this recalls, in some ways, um, the whole idea of the tabernacle in the, the Old Testament, the sense of this moving tent of meeting where the Spirit of God met the people of Israel. And if you remember, when we were working our way through Joshua and Judges, at the very beginning of this, the tent of meeting, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, as the Hebrews would said, was really present. I mean, you kind of knew where the tent of meeting is. And as the people began to decay and their following of, of Yahweh, it was a very legitimate question to ask of where is the tent of meeting? Where is the presence of God? Where is this intersecting reality of a gracious leading God with the people of God to some degree? And John is reminding us once again, this incredible good news that his point of the identity of God is God in flesh among us, that we are encountering the presence of God uh, Wade very graciously, uh, just because I, I got a free book from a publisher, and I can't tell you whether the book's any good or not, but I read the first three pages and I thought, man, B.B. King is a really good, a really good way of thinking of this. And this writer had basically said, this gospel is a gospel of, of love coming to town, God's love in person, divine love enfleshed. And, and let me ask you this question. Um, when, to some degree, using the metaphor of the song, when love comes to town, but when love, true love, intersects with our world, what happens to us? What happens to individuals? What happens to people when we experience love? If there was the reality of love enfleshed among us, tinting among us, what does it do to our lives? Anybody ever done anything just ridiculously crazy because you thought you loved somebody? Sure. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the language of hope is a vacant language without the experience of love. Exactly. Other thoughts of how love, when we encounter it truly, changes our lives. Yeah, I think that's so true. I, I wrote down on my list, changes our trajectory. I mean, we're going somewhere, and, and, and this intersection with love, it truly does disrupt us. It, 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 I mean, everything can change in the context of, of loving and being loved. Our purpose, our goal, our definition of hope, how we want to live our lives, it disrupts us. That's a great word, Dave. Yeah. Yeah, I think sort of drawing on both of those, that one of the reasons he gives us hope and disrupts us is it, sometimes he gives us alternatives. You know, I, all of a sudden I have a choice. I don't have to bear this alone. I don't have to do this myself. I have a support structure. I have these people around me that are bound to me in love. Uh, and it gives me a way to go that is, is, is different um, and preferable. 
Yeah, you know, and I didn't think this, but you're saying that so well that in some ways love is always, or, or at least as we're describing it here, uh, a communal reality. It's something that draws us into relationship with others. So all of a sudden, we are not self-reliant. Uh, perhaps we're not self-righteous. Perhaps we're not alone. Even in the, I, I, one of the things I wrote down is it, it brings meaning to loss, pain, and tragedy. And those are all things that where we experience love in community in a communal way that changes us and it creates a major sense of of safety. I think we've all had that feeling after the worst, most ridiculous day of your life when you came home to a friend a family member, someone who loved you. You had a girlfriend call or a friend who said, let's just go get a glass of wine and unpack your day. And in the midst of that telling the story, it's actually a different story now because you're telling it to someone else. I think that's a great point. Anybody else of how love disrupts us, changes our world? I think uh, it, it brings a freedom to take risks. The, the, the world has all these yeah. Sort of bars and hoops that we have to jump through, and it's full of what look like success and failure. And love kind of knocks all those bars and, and hoops down, and just says, "Just, just be who you are. Just do whatever it is you're gonna do, and and you're loved. It, you if you you jump over the bar or you go through the hoop, it doesn't matter, or you miss, it doesn't matter. You you just you just do what you, whatever you're made to do. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it love does create a sense of purpose and a, a sense of mission in our lives. I think of a lot of you who are artists, and you probably had that talk with your parents of like, uh, Wade, Jesse, Dale, whoever. Uh, you, you know, you can never make a living doing this. You know, and, and in some ways, and, and, and those of you who are in graduate school and you're thinking, okay, you know, they may not pay me a gazillion dollars to do what I'm doing, but in some ways your love of that discipline uh, gives you a sense of mission and purpose that defines it more than even how people reward it. None of us will sit on a national broadcast, well, most, I don't think any of us will, of a television show and say, I'm taking my academic, my artistic, my business talents to South Beach. <laughs> it's just probably not going to happen to any of us. But if it does, I'll watch and I'll be really excited for you. Uh, any other way that love disrupts our lives and defines our lives? You know, I was thinking about this, Sarah, that there's a, a, um, a level of blessing, isn't there, that comes with loving and being loved. We can say things in the context of love that weren't normally said. Um, Mimi's coming back from a, a soccer tournament today, so I can say that she's not here. This is a, a story I'm probably not allowed to tell, so don't tell. Wait, no. um, but, you know, one of the things, she grew up in a really critical family. I mean, it was so critical that you constantly, every, I mean, you had to think about what were the 52 criticisms of what could happen and have a response. 
months. So it was a family of a lot of busy people. The work ethic of that family is unbelievable. Even now, I, I sometimes grab Mimi and say, you know, you don't have to just, first of all, you're the only one who prepares for meetings, but you're also the only one who prepares for meetings and the 10 possible outcomes of those meetings. But it, but it was that nurture and it was not a nurturing environment of compliments and affirmations. And so sometimes I'll try to affirm and it just kind of, and so jokingly, I, 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 for years would say, Mimi, I think you're beautiful. And she would always say, well, I'm mediocre. <laughs> and that was as good as you could say. So my comeback, it's almost like a catechism, as I always say, among mediocre women, you're at the really top of the mediocre list. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm going to be undaunted in saying this, uh, even though you're going to reject it. Um, and in some ways, there is a persistence in love that, 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 that forces us to bless each other, even when we don't want to be blessed. And at some level, there's enough woundedness in all of us where we don't want to be loved. We think we're unworthy of love and, and, and we cannot be loved. And in some ways, if love truly comes to town, it changes us dramatically. It changes our lives. It defines our hope. It brings meaning to loss and tragedy. Even the absence of God, meaning could come from this. It defines our mission. It defines our passion. It's the anchor of our joy. I think joy is downright trite at times unless it's connected to love. And then once it's connected to love, it's one of the most powerful experiences that we see. Now, the problem with Jesus, the Lagos, the Christ, is that that kind of love illuminates evil and darkness. I had a dear friend one time, uh, a guy named Brian McLaren. We were, he was being put on the spot and somebody said, what is your vision for the church? And he said, you know, this would be a great vision for the church is if there were people who commodified others, who made their money off of greed, who hurt others, that was what they did, that they would feel so illuminated by the prophetic words of the church that they would hate us rather than think in some ways that we're silent, complicit partners. And I think that's a pretty good idea. And one of the things that we're going to run into with the Christ of John, the I am, I am the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, all of those things is that the kind of love that comes to town in John is the kind of love that cannot be commodified. It cannot be controlled. You don't know what it's going to do. It might care for somebody who looks unlovely, someone who's in the wrong racial group, somebody who is is not part of the elite in some way. And that kind of love for some is the kind of love that you desperately need to kill. And all of us have been around people who the minute we experience joy in our lives, we have forsaken our relationship with them. And in some ways we're going to see that experience. Um, so I would suggest to us that love might be the thing that we're most awkward with in terms of God because we've got so many questions. But this is my goal as we kind of trek through John for the next several weeks is that we repetitively encounter the love of God, um, the love of God that became flesh and tinted among us. And I would welcome any story, any reflection, any struggle that comes with proximity to God and, and certainly our struggles to know that we're loved by God. And to some degree, if we can get that down, um, 
boy, I don't know what else is going to be a huge struggle, so to speak. And I've had at least two spiritual directors say to me that to some degree, um, the heart of, of, of Christian faith is not being able to say I'm a sinner or I've, I've failed or I need redemption. Very important. But unless you can add the back part of that, I am a sinner. I've failed. I have, I am broken. I am not perfect, but I'm loved by God. That's when we begin to arrive as, as understanding the gift of being the children of God. Wait, I think you guys are going to lead us in music tonight of, of confession and absolution. And while you're setting yourself up, I thought I would pray for us that we might be people who, who, who discern the love of God, or even if we're resistant to it, are overwhelmed by it every now and then. So let's pray together. God, your words here in John are powerful words, ones that defy description. They're just out there, huge declarations. And I pray for this community of dear friends, uh, people that I love and have loved me so carefully and wonderfully and loved each other, that we might not only experience your love through each other, but be overwhelmed as well by your enfleshed love and the love of your spirit. Amen. Thank you, Tim. This week, uh, Robert uh, Bailey behind me uh, and I were talking about the, a parable that many people refer to as the parable of the sower and the seeds. And I've heard some people talk about it in terms of humor and irony in scripture and, and, and talk about it as the parable of the bad farmer. And the reason why it's the, uh, <clears throat> sorry, parable of the bad farmer, that speaker should act in the Lord. The parable of the bad farmer is because, uh, you know, the, the farmer goes out and throws seed everywhere, and no farmer does that. That's stupid. I mean, you don't throw seed on rocks and on concrete, and <laughs> you just you throw seed where it's going to grow. And so at some level, that extravagance, that picture of God being the bad farmer um, was certainly a story, I think, that was trying to get us to understand how much grace, how much love is really there from God for us. So um, as is our tradition with confession absolution, we're going to do a couple songs. And I think one of the places that we're able to experience joy to the fullest is when we also are able to say, um, the hurts that I've had are real. They're not fake. They're not things that I've imagined. They're real. But at the same time, God is also that real. And so I hope you can hear that in our confession and her absolution. Uh, this is by way of sorrows. You've been taken by the wind. You have known the kiss of sorrow. Doors that would not let you in. Outcast and a stranger. Have come by way of sorrow, you have come by way of tears. You'll reach your destiny, meant to find you all these years, meant to find you all these years. Let's do it from the top, so if you're just getting it, we'll try it again. You've been taken by the wind, you've been taken by the wind, you have known the kiss of sorrow. Destiny meant to find you all. 
us to rise in the great mystery of his sacrifice in sweet communion my need he supplies he saves and keeps and guards my life grace upon grace every sin repair every void restore you will find him there in every turning To honor you, trust like a child. My hopes and desires seek a new destination. And all that I ask, your grace will provide. Grace upon grace, every sin repair, every void restore. You will find him there. In every turning, he will prepare you. It seems interesting to me that uh, when the gospel writer sat down to pen uh, the events that had taken place, uh, the coming of Christ into the world, that that gospel writer here in John begun likely by picking up a hymn, by picking up something that looks like a song. When we're reading through the passage, you might have missed that, but to some extent what is going on here is that this is in some sense a lyric, a song. And along with that, I think as the theologians of the church were thinking about how to describe the relationship of Christ to God the Father, they used a term that means the life of God is something like a dance. It's something like an ongoing dance where there are three individual Persons engaged in an ongoing act of love that is in some sense one substance. Now I know that that kind of seems, oh, that's a nice little thought. You know, and, and, and we have very many, we have a lot of different songs and a lot of different dances in our society. And, and if you've ever been to a debutante uh, event, you know that there's a certain kind of dance that's going on there. Uh, if you've ever been to a ballroom dance, you know that there's a certain type of dance going on there where the way things are, classes, uh, certain places where people are supposed to be are kept rigidly in line. There's an idea of you only dance with a certain group of people who are proper for you to dance with, and that is how the life or choreographed life goes on. 
But I think as we begin to read this first chapter of John, what we find here is a different kind of dance. We find here something maybe like what is every debutante girl's really secret dream of dance, which might be dirty dancing. We find the carnival here. We find in some sense exactly what we did with the blues. That type of dancing, that type of lyric, that type of song that in some sense turns the world upside down. Where the people who are on the bottom, somehow through the dance and through the lyric, find themselves in acting a different world, in acting a different life, living out a different form of life that somehow turns the things that are oppressing them completely on their head. And I think here, as we begin to read about the word who tented among us, we find ourselves invited into that type of dance. We find ourselves invited into a life of God that does not want to maintain things as they are, that does not encounter the world and put his stamp of approval on the world saying, everything stay the same, but who becomes incarnate and radically turns the world upside down in doing so. Tonight, as we come to the table, you're invited into that dance. As you pick up the incarnate body of Christ, breaking bread and sharing wine or juice for one another, you're invited into a dance that in some sense here begins to turn the world upside down, where the love of God is not shared simply with those who deserve it or who think they deserve it, but it is given freely to all, where those who find themselves on the bottom somehow are brought up into the very life of God that the grace of God is born out in your life and in my life together as we circle in a choreography of the love of God in our world. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited. We come together to the table breaking bread for one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you as a tangible reality of the fact that God has become incarnate in our world in Christ first, and now in the church. And we share wine or juice with one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you as a reminder of the blood of Christ shed that in fact is turning the world upside down. After we share communion with one another, I'll invite you back here. Uh, Wade and the band will invite you back here uh, to sing a song of benediction on our way out. Come now to the table. Come now to the dance. Come now to the song that is turning the world upside down by love. Amen. Um, hey, if you guys will grab uh, your lyrics, want to just do this song of benediction with you, uh, Show Me the River, which is, I think, again, a song... Uh, following along on our theme of hope. The home here is clearly, uh, I think a home with God is that place where God will be with us, where we'll be with Him. And I think uh, Christ uh, being the uh, messenger of that hope and of that physical redemption and that resurrection. So uh, join us uh, in this one. Traveler to far 
faraway lands With love on my mind Death on these hands Come homeward angel Show me the way Oh, fate leave me dead The tracks were right
Hey, as we're heading out tonight, Brett and I, where's Brett? Um, back behind me, Brett and our host said, hey, it'd be great if we all busted in here and just tore this room apart really fast so they could get to the ball game as well. So uh, if you're willing to help with that, please do so. And I do hope this week that you are indeed overwhelmed in your encounters with God's love. Go in peace. Show me the river that leads to my